You are listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at www.riversideconnect.org. Good morning again. If you've walked in since we began the service, my name is Douglas. I work in student ministry here at Riverside, and I'm really glad you're all here today. How many of you can remember a time as a kid where you were caught red-handed? Like caught in the act of something. Like, the, it isn't, don't parents just have like the perfect timing or whoever's like in charge of you in that moment? Like as soon as you make the decision in your mind, you're like, I'm supposed to eat this crayon. Like I'm totally supposed to take a bite of this. As soon as you're, you've like got it in your mouth, that's whenever mom walks in. It's perfect. And, and then whenever you're like, you know, boys, you, you always, we always end up wrestling. It's just what we do. Uh, girls, when you hang out, no, you don't wrestle. It's weird. So you're wrestling, as soon as somebody's heel goes through the wall, that's when dad comes home. There's all, it's like the timing is perfect that they always come in right in like the worst moment where you don't want to get caught doing whatever you're doing. Um, my brother Dylan and I used to, we used to fight a lot because uh, we're, we're 10 years apart. Uh, my older brother, we're only three years apart. So we, we competed, but like Dylan, we just fought because um, I was basically raising him. That's what I like to say. We're 10 years apart in age, and there was one time that we were, we were fighting, and the fight got vicious. Uh, we, started, we started biting each other's hair out of each other's heads, um, and we heard the garage door going up, which meant mom or dad was home, which meant we had to, like, we were crying because it hurt biting the hair out of each other's heads. We had to stop whatever we were doing and clean up the tears and, you know, resolve it between us so there wasn't any, like, unresol- like tension left over. We had to fix it before dad came in because we didn't want him to know we were fighting. Um, Dylan bit my hair first, though, just so you guys know. <laughs> he, 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 he drew first blood. Um, Growing up, though, uh, I lived in a housing plan. And I don't know how many of you live in a housing plan, but it was awesome. It was great. Friends were always nearby. Uh, this was pre-cell like cell phone. Nobody had cell phones under the age of 18 at this time. So when I would go out playing, like I would check in by calling my parents' house phone from another friend's house phone around the neighborhood. And if that way, my dad knew where to get a hold of me if he needed to call me. But my dad had a super, a supersonic whistle that he would use. Even if I was in my friend's houses, I could hear this whistle. Like, this isn't like a super small neighborhood, but it was like, I don't know, I'd be maybe like a half mile away and I could hear his whistle and I knew like, it's dinner time, I should go home. And my friends would always like joke about it, make fun of this whistle, but like, it was incredible. And I I could look from like across the neighborhood and see this like miniature ant size of my dad, like out by the flagpole, just waving. And I was like, I'm going home. But there were some times where the whistle came at an inopportune time where I knew I would not be presentable if I went home in my current condition. This one time I was hanging out with my friend Tommy. Now, Tommy is not a troublemaker. Tommy was a good kid. Uh, every now and then we get a little rowdy and things would break. Uh, but this time we were out playing and they were just expanding our neighborhood. They were building new houses, um, clearing off new properties, which meant a few things for young boys. It meant cavernous foundations that were dug for us to play like forts in. So those were forts. It meant empty shell skeleton house frames for us to do hide and seek and make up all kinds of stories and things that were going on. And it meant big piles of of gravel for us to play on. I don't know why I was so drawn to the gravel, but I just, I saw this big mountain and I thought I need to climb this mountain. So Tommy was like, let's go to the top and then let's slide down it. Cause like all the rocks will move under us. I was like, that sounds great. So we did it like once or twice. And I was like, man, this is like the best thing ever. So we just kept doing it. We kept sliding down. It got to the point where I probably looked like Gollum from Lord of the Rings. I was so gray from just like the soot and the ash from rolling around in these rocks. And then I heard it. I heard the whistle. The whistle whistle that said, come home, dinner's ready. You better be clean whenever you get here. 
So what did I do? Pretended I didn't hear it. I just kept sliding down those rocks. And mind you, in my, like, my parents' house is on a hill. So like they're right here. Literally, the hill goes down. There are no houses in between yet. I'm right here. There are no trees in the way. Like they can see what I'm doing. I know my dad's whistle. I can see him and I know he can see me. I'm the only little boy with Tommy rolling around on the rocks. But I just stayed there. I was like, maybe he'll just, you know, maybe they can just eat without me. I'll be fine. I'll figure something else out. Well, my mom and dad left the house and they came to find me. And they walked up and they found me. And I, I had jeans that every step I took, there were like little rocks falling out of my pant legs. I was so dirty and he caught me gray-bodied or red-handed, whatever you want to say. Uh, and then my punishment, which I, looking back, I think it was appropriate. Um, I should add a clarification. In the first service, I didn't add this, but um, I had to take off all of my clothes outside because you can't go in the house that dirty. Definitely not to dinner, but not even in the house. Like, you do not belong in the house if you're that dirty. Had to take off all my clothes in the backyard. I'm like 10, so I'm, I'm a young boy. It's, it's fine all my clothes off in the backyard. He puts this big metal basin and I had to step inside of it and he just hosed me down. <laughs> it was like kind of a chilly evening too. Like the sun was setting. Was, so I'm just standing there like shivering. And I think this is the, the thing I didn't add in the first service. I think my mom did hold a towel somewhere in this region in front of me. But I, I think the neighbors could still see that, you know, the naked little boy was getting hosed down in the backyard. <laughs> Appropriate punishment, but so cold, so public, so shameful. <laughs> But so almost all of us can think of a time where we were caught somehow red-handed. Hopefully not too many recent things as adults you're getting caught red-handed, like at work, like, you know, cheating on stuff or in school on tests or whatever. But we're caught. We get caught red-handed because we're broken. We make mistakes. We make selfish decisions. We act on impulses. We succumb to temptations. We're, we're quick to do those kind of things, leading us to a point where we need a divine intervention. And this is exactly what God is in the business of doing. And this is what we're going to talk about this entire month. Um, we're going to talk about different aspects, different moments specifically where God does an intervention in a unique way. Um, now I don't want you to get the wrong idea. God is never far. He is always near. He is always with us. But these interventions are moments where God kind of stepped outside of the normal and did something unique and powerful. Next week, we're going to look at how God shows up in our restlessness. And we're going to look at the story of Abraham and Sarah. The week after that, we will look at Zechariah and Elizabeth and how God shows up in our moments of barrenness. Um, the week after that, uh, our final week of the series, we will look at how God shows up in our moments of faithfulness when he uh, divinely intervenes with Joseph uh, and Mary. But this week, we're going to start back at the beginning of it all and see how God shows up in our brokenness um, when he intervened with Adam and Eve in the garden. Um, before we get there, I want to pray and then we will dive into the content. God, we thank you that we can study your word today. That as we open up scripture, as we read your words, that there is power in these words because they are your living, God-breathed words. And they pack truth. And that truth sometimes hurts, but we also know, God, that you are a God of grace and that your truth is backed by grace and love. And I pray that this morning, whatever brokenness we have, that we have brought into this place, that we would experience your grace and that we would experience new life in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So is God still in the business of intervening today? And today I want to look at what are the reasons why God intervenes. And we're going to look at one specifically this morning. You can turn to Genesis 3 if you have a paper Bible, uh, digital, or if you're in our app. Um, if you're following along with the podcast, Genesis 3 is where we will be. Um, only a few scriptures will end up on the screen, so I'd love it if you had something in your hands to follow along. So just to set the scene, if you have not recently, 
Go back and read Genesis 1 and 2. Like the whole creation account is just amazing. I think we take it for granted and we only use it whenever we need to argue creation versus evolution. But looking at God creating things out of nothingness, like making all the animals and telling the, the ocean where to stop and the moon and the stars and the sun, like all of that stuff. It's just incredible to see all of that playing out. And then he, he creates the man and then he sees it's not good for him to be by himself. So he gives him a companion, Eve. And the guy wakes up and he's like, this all happened while I was sleeping. This is awesome. She's my friend. This is great. But then the serpent comes in. These serpents are always ruining everything, right? Chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And just a little uh, a preface, if you didn't know this about this creation story, I don't wanna assume anything. God gave them their commands and what they would rule over and how they were to tend to the land and they were gonna rule over the animals and all this stuff. And he said, you can eat from any tree in the garden except for this one. Do not eat from this tree. And it was just very clear. You've got everything else that's good for you. Take it, eat it, enjoy it. Just this one tree, just leave it alone. And he was very clear and stern with that. So now we've got this serpent who's embodied like, this is, this is the devil, this is Satan, this is the enemy that we talk about. This is his first little uh, appearance here in scripture. Um, and it's interesting, the word he uses for God, there are different names for God throughout scripture that kind of, highlight different characteristics of our creator. And the one he uses here in the original text, um, it's, it's the, the name for God, Elohim, which is a very proper name for God. But he didn't use the word Yahweh, which describes a very personal connection with God. So it's almost as if in his craftiness, he's making sure we keep God at a distance. Make sure we don't draw him too close and talk about the, the closeness, the relationship we can have with him. It's, he's out here. He's way out there. Didn't that guy way out there say this to you? And you can kind of sense the manipulation already um, beginning there as he's starting to sow these seeds of doubt. So the woman responds to the serpent. She says, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. So even then, she's even getting this a little bit secondhand because that, that initial command was given right to Adam. And you can see that she's already like kind of waffling a little bit. She says it, but you can sense this hint that like she's kind of starting to buy into the doubt that she's getting from this serpent because he's saying like, are, did he really say, like, are you sure? Like, do you have it written down? Is there like a, a, a replay you can watch to make sure he said it? Because I think you should just totally eat from this tree. I think it'd be great for you. So the serpent then continues his plot he says, you will certainly not die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So isn't it almost sad and tragic to see how quickly two lines of dialogue the serpent has and he has totally taken the one big rule God had given them and he totally breaks down that promise and they no, they no longer believe it. Eve no longer believes in God's trustworthy words because the enemy has said, are you sure he said that? I think he's just trying to keep you from your potential. I think God's trying to restrain you because I think you can know more. You can be more wise. You, you, can, you can know more about good and evil. I think you should eat this fruit. And immediately Eve's like, yeah, you're right. Hey, hubby, come here, try this fruit. I, I, I've got a revelation. 
It is sad to see that so quickly brokenness enters when trust in God exits. That the moment we begin to no longer trust in the validity of God's words, when we no longer trust in the promises that God has given to us, when we no longer trust in the character that he desires us to live like, brokenness enters. When trust walks out before the door swings shut, brokenness comes in. And when I say brokenness, this is going to refer to two kind of larger categories. So brokenness is up here, and then down here are sin and the results of sin. And I'm going to go through a list that is by no way comprehensive, but hopefully this will give you an idea of what kind of things we're talking about when we say brokenness. Bear with me a moment. Selfishness, pride, arrogance, mistrust, fear, doubt, worry, greed, jealousy, and anger, rage, and murder, and war, humiliation, filthy language, lust, lies, idolatry, alienation, blaming, cheating, corruption, oppression, violence, abuse, neglect, affairs, divorce, political parties, confusion, poor eyesight, loss of hearing, failing heart, strokes, and cancer. They all began in this moment when brokenness entered. Even the years you spent in junior high, those are broken times. Acne, pain in childbirth, and ultimately death. They all started here. They all started the first moment where brokenness entered. Even the need for us to have Christmas, for Jesus to come, it all started here in this moment. When trust walks out, when you let your trust in God walk out, brokenness is sure to enter that door right away. Verse seven, then the eyes of both of them were open. So they've eaten the fruit, their eyes are now open and they realize that they were naked. Before this, they did not have any qualms or issues about being unclothed because they didn't have any reason to. But now they, they, their eyes are open after eating this fruit. They realize they're naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Can you guys think of that moment? Can you remember the scary sound of like the front door unlocking? When like you know you're doing something you shouldn't be doing and you know your parents are coming in, you hear the door unlocking and you're like, I need to hide. Clean up the evidence, wash my hands, wash the wall that I just wrote on. Like try and figure it out really quickly. Or you hear the sound of like the footsteps coming down the stairs. Shh, shh, dad's coming. You gotta try and cover it up, right? You gotta hide, you gotta fix it. You gotta make it not look like what it looks like. And when brokenness enters, brokenness doesn't come by itself. Brokenness brings its friend shame. They're kind of a package deal these days. And it's funny how that works. And I, as I was thinking about this, I was comparing shame to that awful, stupid pickle you get with every sandwich you order at a restaurant. Right, like you're already feeling guilty enough because you're ordering this big greasy sandwich. And you just want, I just want the greasy sandwich. I just want this. This is, this is good for me. This will fill me. This will be nice. I don't want the pickle that's gonna make my sandwich soggy. Keep the pickle. I don't want, even when you say keep the pickle, they still spear that stupid thing on the top of my sandwich. And it's this shame that's coming in with brokenness. Like, hey, don't forget about me. After you're broken, you've got to feel bad about it. And that's one of the enemy's ways of, of hurting us even more. Shame is guilt's third cousin, twice removed. Guilt is like this fact that you've done something wrong. It's like the knowledge and awareness that this is something I've done and this was wrong. Shame is this feeling of embarrassment that you get from knowing that you've done something wrong. So they're kind of the same. There's a little bit of overlap there, but they lead to different results. A healthy dose of guilt can lead you to repentance, which is turning away from your sin and turning towards God. A healthy dose of guilt can lead you to um, 
to confession and acknowledging your sin. A healthy dose of guilt can cause you to run towards God because you want his help. You realize your dependence upon him. But shame can often kind of bully you and belittle you into hiding or lying and covering up your brokenness and your sin. With that sin ends up leading to more sin and you end up running further away from God. So don't let brokenness enter and don't let it bring its friend shame. Paul would write to the church in Corinth, which was, man, if you wanna read about like a broken, burdened, sinful city, read about Corinth and Greece. But he's writing to them and saying, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret but worldly sorrow brings death. And it's almost that same comparison. A godly sorrow, a healthy ounce of guilt can lead you to repentance, which leads to life and salvation. But if you just let shame take over, it's just gonna lead to more death and more brokenness. God's instructions are not open to modification. So why are they trying to cover it up? Why are they trying to hide? But I love this. Genesis 3, 9 is one of my favorite verses and it's so simple. It says, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? In their hiding, in their sin and their shame and their brokenness, they're hiding in the trees and God is not yelling out punishment. He's not yelling out curses. He's just saying, where are you? And I want you to know that this morning, whatever brokenness you've got here or at home or at work or at school or wherever you've got this brokenness, maybe it's super private brokenness that nobody knows about, God knows about it. And still, despite that brokenness, he's calling out, where are you? He's calling you out by name. He's always been nearby. He's never been far. But he wants to know why you're hiding. He wants to call you out. And it's, it's not this like, hey, come out of hiding so I can spank you. It's like the ollie ollie oxen free when you're playing capture the flag or hide and go seek. It's you can come out without punishment. You can come out without penalty. Don't be scared to come out. The game is over, the jig is up. I want you to come out because I, I wanna show you my love. I wanna show you my embrace. God searches for you even when you are broken. In the worst of your sin, he's still calling out. Where are you? During the Christmas season, one of the names we use for Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. God has always been a God of proximity. He has never been far. And even today, he is still with us. He is within the proximity but he's still calling out. He's still making an effort. He's reaching out. He's pursuing you, anxiously awaiting your response. Are you running towards his voice? Are you running away from it? So Adam answers his call. God says, where are you? Adam answers, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So immediately, his first reaction is to justify his response. He's already starting on the little excuse train, trying to figure out, how can I make this not seem as bad as it is? Uh, found I didn't have any clothes, so I went in the trees. Yeah, you think God's gonna buy that? So then God says, well, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And in, the, in this moment, I see God taking on this like traditional parent role, where like you find your kid and they've got like Oreo all through the teeth, and you ask them, you're like, Johnny, did, shh, did you eat the entire sleeve of Oreos? No, uh-uh. I, I can see Oreos in your teeth, Johnny. Did you eat the entire sleeve of Oreos? There's crumbs on your pant leg. Did you eat them? And you're asking these questions and you know the answer. Susie, did you take mommy's lipstick and write on the wall? She's still holding it in her hand. Mm -mm. 
No, the dog did it. It was the dog. It's like, all right, Susie, you're the only one with opposable thumbs in the house right now, and you're holding the lipstick. It was clearly you. So we ask the questions, and why, why as parents would we want to still ask those questions? It's because we desire for our children, and God desires for us to experience our own breakthrough and our brokenness. We want them to just acknowledge it. We don't always want to be telling them, you did this wrong, you did that wrong. Sometimes realizing it on our own and partnering with them to do that is important. And God's doing that here. He's asking these questions. You know he knows the answer. He knows they've eaten from the fruit. You can probably see the apple that's been bit out of sitting there. But he asks the questions because he wants us to experience that breakthrough together. I love that. Verse 12, so the man's response. So he's already come up with one excuse. I'm hiding because I was naked and I want you to see me. Why are you naked? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from this tree? The man says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Now ladies, that doesn't feel very nice, does it? You get created and you're beautiful and you make one little mistake and all of a sudden it's all your fault. So he pins it all on her. So God then, all right, Eve, he turns to the woman and he says, what is this that you have done? She says, it was the serpent. He deceived me and I ate it. So they're just playing the blame game. And here I'm reminded that brokenness enters, brings its friend shame, but there's a third friend trailing along and he's not far behind. Brokenness brings its other friend into the mix, pride. And pride says, you are not wrong. Nothing you do is ever wrong. Sin just happens to you. You're a victim always. Remember that. Pride wants to keep you in the victim role so you never have to own up to anything. You never have to admit to anything. It's so easy to justify and excuse our poor decision-making because the power of sin is so strong. The power of that brokenness is really strong. The temptation is too much to bear. Pride has this powerful voice that whispers in your ear, it's her fault. It's because, of, it's because of what she did first, or it's his fault. It's because of the way he treated you, or it's because he started this. It's because I don't have this. Pride wants you to blame it on what you don't have. Pride wants you to, to blame it on the situation that you're in. Well, I'm, I'm a victim. This happened to me. It's because of this that I'm doing these things. Like this sin is justified because of all this around me. I'm not happy over here, so this makes me happy. Just let me have this. Well, if this hadn't happened... Do we really think we're going to outsmart God by blaming our sin on others or on situations? I think our God's smarter than that. Considering he created us in all things, I, I think he can see right through that. So why even bother with the excuses and the hiding? Why let pride come in and stay on the couch for a while? And it's easy to see that this story is not just about Adam and Eve. This is the story of us. We are still today being caught in our brokenness, running and hiding, and when God comes asking questions, we've got a list of excuses for why we're doing it. Well, I'm doing this because my needs aren't met here. I'm doing this because I'm not getting paid enough there. I'm doing this because I'm not getting noticed and promoted, so I just need to cheat my way to the top. I'm doing this because I can't get the grades on my own because I'm so busy with extracurriculars, I'll just cheat on my test. Nobody will know. It's because I'm doing all this other good stuff that I get to do this. Almost like we're purchasing our sinful moments with all of our righteous acts and deeds. It's the story of us. And we're reluctant to repent and accept our own brokenness. But God's there and he asks the questions. So then God turns to the serpent. He's talked to the man, he's talked to the woman, he now turns to the serpent and he says, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And then God speaks into existence the first moment we get to experience his plan in Jesus. 
all the way back in Genesis, we can see the first moments where God already had Jesus in plan. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That he will crush your head is the first little prophecy moment talking about Jesus. God is saying in this brokenness, he's saying to the serpent, just so you can prepare yourself, you will be defeated. You will be defeated by my son who will come and he will teach and he will love and he will serve and he will die and he will conquer you. The victory will be won and it will be my side that's waving the flag of victory. So in this moment, moment, we've got all these unwanted house guests. Brokenness is in the kitchen cooking. Pride's taking a bathroom break and shame's laying out on the couch watching a football game. God swings the door open and says, I want you to meet somebody new and all these other house guests get to leave. I wanna show you grace. I want you to meet Jesus. I want you to meet my son. So God introduces grace. His victory over sin and death is solidified. The defeat of the enemy has been put in ink. We don't need to doubt it. He brings in grace. First John 3, 8, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. It's been this plan all along. And there are these themes in chapter three that have a way of reappearing in the story of Christ. Themes of death, toil, sweat, thorns, the tree, the struggle, and the seed, all later connected to Christ as the other Adam, the second Adam, who became the curse, who sweat great drops of blood and bitter agony. He wore a crown of thorns and he was hanged on a tree until he was dead and he was placed in the dust of death. All of this was part of God's divine intervention into our brokenness. And what I love about this moment, a little bit later when he's talking to the man and woman and talking to them about the pain that they will experience, talking about childbirth and the labor and working on the land and the toil and all that stuff, he cast them out of the garden in that moment. It also says in that moment, God made clothes for them and he covered them. So it's almost like I I like to look at God sometimes as this velvet covered brick. He's got this soft, cushy love grace, but he's also gonna give you the truth. He wants to call out the truth and point that out to you, but he's gonna love you along the way. He's gonna show you grace. He's gonna restore you. That's his plan. His plan is for restoration and healing. And today, I pray that we will welcome God's divine intervention into our brokenness. Don't let sin and its friends, shame and pride, send you into hiding and lying and covering up. Be thankful that we follow a God who is present, who is near, who desires closeness and relationship and welcome his divine intervention. The worship team can make their way up as we prepare to respond. The question I wanna challenge you with this morning that I hope that you'll think about during this time of response is what is the brokenness that has you in hiding? What is the brokenness that is causing you that when you hear the footsteps of God, when you feel his presence is near, when you hear his voice calling out to you, you don't want to respond, you want to run and you want to hide and you wanna cover it up and you wanna make excuses. What is that brokenness? I think there's power in personally for yourself labeling that, giving it a name, saying, this is my brokenness. It's lust. My brokenness is lying. It's gossip. It's cheating. It's being two-faced and not having integrity or being authentic around people. It's using my faith as a weapon instead of something that brings healing to other people. Whatever it is for you, I hope you can name some aspect of your brokenness because once we name it, God knows its name. He wants to show you grace. Because when he looks at us, he doesn't see our brokenness. 
He doesn't see your mistakes. He doesn't see your sins, no matter how great or how small. God doesn't see any of that because all he sees when he looks at us is Jesus. Because of what Christ has done, because of the blood of Christ washing us clean, he doesn't see our mistakes. He sees us as righteous and holy and pure, not because of anything we can do on our own, but because of everything Jesus has done for us. This cross that that symbolizes pain and agony and torture and this like public humiliating death, for us, it represents life. This represents what, what has washed us clean. It's exactly why we anticipate and why we sing songs like the long-awaited Messiah. Could you imagine the agony those people were experiencing leading up? Christ has not come yet. But like Dave said earlier, we're, we're living in light of that. We're living in the aftermath of that. What brokenness has you in hiding? I'd love for everyone in the room to close their eyes and you can bow your head or keep your head up, whatever's more comfortable, but close your eyes. And I'm trusting everybody's actually gonna do it. Just play along with me for a minute. Everybody with their eyes closed. I want you to imagine yourself there in the garden. In Adam and Eve's shoes, they were tempted. It made sense in the moment. They acted on it. And you hear the footsteps of God walking nearby. And maybe instead of eating fruit from a tree that was their sin, maybe in there in your story, in your imagination, now you place in the moments where you fall short. The moments where you've turned away from God's plan and desire for your life. The moments where you've been selfish, where you've been greedy. You hear his footsteps, but then you hear his voice. This loving and tender and compassionate fatherly voice saying, hey, where are you? I'm looking for you. Ali, Ali, oxen for you. You can come out of hiding. There's no penalty. There's no punishment. My son has taken all of it. You don't need to be afraid. With everybody's eyes closed, I want to present just a moment here that if anybody in the room has not ever responded to that call. If you're sitting there and maybe you, you've known he's been calling your name or maybe this is the first you're hearing about it, but you've been ignoring it. You've been turning away from it. You've been running the opposite direction so that it fades into the distance. But with everybody's eyes closed, nobody's looking around. This isn't for anybody but you, but I think there is power in having an outward gesture and expression of an inward transformation and decision. If you would like today to respond for the first time in your life to God's call saying, where are you? I want to know you and I want you to know me. I want you to live for me and I wanna help you to do it. If you wanna respond to that today and give your life to Christ, would you just raise your hand? And nobody's looking. Nobody's gonna come and talk to you afterwards about this unless you go and talk to somebody about it. This is just for you to feel an outward gesture that represents an internal decision. Just raise your hand up. God's the one that's looking for those hands. You can decide today. There's never a better moment than now to give your life to Christ. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the fact that you are always close, that you are always near. You're not just coming to lash out punishment and to yell at us whenever we do wrong. You're there for a relationship. You're with us through it all. And I'm thankful that you intervene in our moments of brokenness. 
I'm thankful that you care enough to call out where are you and to ask the questions to help us come to our own realizations. What a loving father you are. Thank you that you show up when things are broken, when things are wrong, when we take matters into our own hands. God, will you save us from ourselves? The temptations are so strong. The power of sin is so strong, but you have promised us that your power is stronger. Thank you. God, thank you for your truth. That yes, it points out our sin, but then you introduce us to grace. You introduce us to Jesus. There's nothing to be more thankful about than that. God, I pray that whatever brokenness we have given a name today, that whatever we imagined as we were thinking there and putting ourselves in Adam and Eve's shoes, that God, we would hear you calling out to us and we would no longer ignore your call, that we would respond, we would come out of hiding and step into your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at www.riversideconnect.org.